The first thing that prompted me was the service we did a while back, or the series, uh, specifically aimed at inviting friends at the end of the series. And, you know, just put it into my head. Think seriously, is there somebody I know that I could invite? That, that coming to First Christian Church and visiting might connect with them in some useful way. So I just started thinking about it. And I literally went to one of my coworkers and I was like, so my church is having this invite day coming up. And I thought to myself, who is uh, the person I know who is the least likely to already attend church? So I gave them the card. They didn't end up coming, but it didn't really mess up our friendship or anything. Having one of my friends tell me no when I invite them to church, it doesn't discourage me because I know God is working in their lives and I'm just gonna let him and them work out what they need to work out, try to keep my eyes open. And the more I get to know them, the more they share just broken parts of their lives and the more I wish they knew Jesus. So I just try to keep looking for if God is opening them up to being in any interest, and if I see that, I may invite them to church. Well, welcome to First Christian Church tonight. I'm very glad you're with us. If you're a guest, we had that plan just so you could wait in suspense for a few minutes to introduce myself. My name is Wayne, and uh, I'm part of the pastoral team here. We're going to look at Scripture tonight. We're going to look at the book of Matthew. And as you're looking for Matthew in your Bible, um, it's about this far through the Bible. Grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Didn't bring one with you, or maybe on your smartphone, whatever the case. I just want to, the, the video you just saw um, from Jeremy and just the way in which we're hearing about how you as a congregation are inviting people to our Christmas events next week. I want to say thank you. Uh, I want to commend you for the way in which, as a congregation, we have managed this, if you will. Um, I know there's been, I mean, you've got to figure out what service are we coming to and is there going to be room for us and are there tickets for us? And, you know, one of the things that we as a congregation say is that we embrace change well, invariably, that change means that we as individuals have to change, not only the church. So I just want to say thank you for the way in which you've done that. I know you ended up, some people ended up, well, I didn't, I can't get to the service I wanted to attend. Thank you for your flexibility. We are working hard to make certain that we have literally hundreds of seats available for our guests. And so bring your guests, whether or not they have tickets, and uh, let's see what God does in them next week. Uh, it's been Every week I ask, every weekend I've been asking, okay, how are things going at the ticket table? We have no complaints, okay? We've had some people go, uh, I wish, but congratulations. You acted like Christians. I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff, okay? And keep asking, even if like Jeremy, they say not this year. God's going to work on them, and we're going to see what God does in our lives together and through us, okay? All right. So tonight as we start looking at Matthew, uh, we're going to start by solving a riddle that most of you have thought about, or maybe you've thought about if you know about this, but you have no idea to the answer. And in solving the riddle that some of you have asked, uh, I'm going to acknowledge there's a bias against some of the... Am I supposed to change this out now? I'm good? All right. There's a bias against some of the human race. Uh, so I'm going to speak for the 10% of the population that are left-handed. All right? 
because the rest of the population is biased against you. You know that, right? You've experienced that. And uh, here's how it's most clearly seen. Uh, if you're wearing a shirt with a button on it tonight, men, what side is the, what, where does the, the button end up in your, what hand does it end up in? Men, yours, you have a, sh a shirt on that's gonna be on the right hand side, right? Ladies, if you have a lady's blouse on, what side is the button gonna be on? The left side. And you go, is that because all the ladies are left-handed? No, why is that? If, okay, why? So if you didn't even know there was a difference, that the men's shirts are usually buttons on the right-hand side so that we can do it easily with our right hand, and the senses are the ladies then more dexterous and they're able to do it with their left hand? <laughs> What's with that? That could be, could be. But, you know, that, why, that doesn't make sense, though, because those who are left-handed know that uh, in, 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 in any other endeavor in, of engineering in the world, the bias is against the left-handed, right? Because scissors, can openers, baseball gloves, it's all against you if you're left-handed. What's with this? You came to church tonight thinking, I wish somebody would tell me why the buttons are on that side, right? I don't know you came there tonight, but well, here's, here's, what is, here's what's going on. When clasps for shirts and blouses were first engineered, the preference were, preferences were made for the right-handed people so that we would grab the button, those of us who are right-handed, and be able to push it through the little buttonhole. And you say, okay, so why was that? Well, for men, it was a case that the thought was most men being right-handed in those days when this was all put together were warriors or soldiers, and they would carry their pistols or their knives on this side inside their shirt and they needed to be able to get in without having to go you know weird like so that the, the left the right side was laid on top of it and he goes moving quickly is that right does that make sense you got that that's why that's done that way for men why is it then so the women they were going to go like this to get their daggers out i don't know no here's why here's what's going on why women don't don't have it the same way because in the days when clasps, clasps were first put together, or buttons and buttonholes were put together for clothes, women, if they could afford the type of clothes that had these things called buttons, that meant their clothes were extremely, extremely fancy, and they couldn't dress themselves. They had somebody who dressed them. So somebody standing in front of them, using their right hand, would want to do what? Want to have the button on this side. So thus, ladies, ever since, we have given honor to the fact that you wear clothes, at least in the past, that were more difficult to wear than men. And so you're going, I could care less. <laughs> I could care less. What's that got to do with Christmas? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I, I promise you, absolutely nothing. But it will illustrate this, that there's always more to the story than we realize, right? That there's always more to the story as to why the men's buttons are here and the women's are on this side. We're going to see that tonight. We're going to look at what we think is the simple Christmas story, but as we do so, you're going to learn that there is far more to the story because at first glance, we're going to read what happened to Joseph as the angel showed up and said, Mary's going to have a baby. And you're going to think at first glance, well, this is just the story from Jesus' stepfather's perspective. But we're going to learn there's a whole lot more to it as he learns that his life, frankly, is going to be more complicated than he anticipated at first. So read with me and see if we can figure out what's the rest of the story, what's more to the story in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. All right? 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. If you're unfamiliar with the story, they are engaged to be married, all right? But before they came together, before they had any sort of sexual, sexual relations of any sort, okay? So before there's any sexual activity between them, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So this is an engaged couple. She's turned up pregnant by God. Okay, because jo Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. You, some of you are saying, well, I thought she was, they were engaged. Well, in those days, once you were engaged, the, the, it was the, virtually the same as marriage, except you weren't living together and you weren't sleeping together. And so from the perspective of the, of the law, once you were engaged, you might as well have been married. And once you were engaged, it was, it was, a, it was a, a legal binding agreement. And so if you wanted to get out of the engagement, you had to have a divorce. Right, so he's already considered to be her husband, even though they are not yet married, okay? She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, and because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he didn't want to just kind of out her as to what's going on, right? He had in mind to divorce her quietly. We'll just, we'll just call the whole thing off, and you go your way, I'll go my way, you grab the baby, and I don't want to be involved. That was his plan, all right? But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You would have given the name Jesus because he'll save his people from the sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home in his, as his wife. But he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Familiar story. You've heard it before. And we've got to ask, where's the more to the story? Where's the buttons on the right-hand side and the left-hand side in this story? Where, what's going on here? Well, as we look at this story tonight, I want to tell you there are two things that I want to draw to your attention. First of all, I want, I want to spend some time looking with you at the name that's used here. The name, Emmanuel. And then we're going to look at the overall story as a whole and see what's, more, what's going on that we can't see at first glance, all right? Let's start with the first one. The first one, let's talk about what it means that Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. Well, in recent weeks, we've been examining the, the sermon series in the title, God on Mission. The goal together was to discover how Jesus came, if you will, as a divine missionary wrapped in the clothes of human flesh and blood. And we've taken some looks at what's involved in being a missionary. We've said that missionaries are required to take on new life approaches if they expect their effectiveness to be in play. They are essentially ambassadors from a different place. They come from a different place from where they serve. They have to wear clothing often that is different from what their natural clothing would be. They have to learn to speak to a new language. They have to adapt to a different culture. And Jesus did all that. He came from a place different than what he served. He had to exchange his divine nature for a human nature taking on flesh and blood. He had to leave behind an immortal body. 
And then within the culture of humanity, he had to learn to speak a different language. He came as God's missionary to the entire cosmos and to humanity in particular. And we've learned that as he arrived here, he was God on mission. In other words, a successful missionary does more than just bring a message. The message is the goal, but the vehicle of that message arriving comes through the missionary. The missionary adapts and blends into the human landscape of that new culture. And that's exactly what's taking place here in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us that the angel said this to Joseph. Mary will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You say, I don't see any missionary work here yet. Well, it's coming. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's the mission part, the God with us. See, this business of Jesus' name being Emmanuel is, cru is crucial. His name is Emmanuel. That means God with us. It's not God looking at us. It's not God speaking about us. It's not God judging us or killing humans or despising humans. No, it is God with us. Jesus came identifying with humanity, not only by taking on human culture, not only by speaking our language, if you will, but he came wearing our clothes. He did? Yeah, he came wearing flesh and blood like us. His body it wasn't some sort of extraterrestrial ET that he could put fingers on and everybody would turn red, you know, little glowing things. He, his skin was like yours and mine. If you cut it, it would bleed. If he used his hands over and over in a repetitive action, he would have developed calluses. He needed sleep on a regular basis. He needed food. This Jesus flesh and blood stuff, that's the essence of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That's where it starts, right there. God with us. But there's more to this story. There's more than just Joseph learning about He's going to raise the Son of God. But this little baby becomes a little boy, then an adolescent, and is a, a young man. And this baby coming was a complex matter. In some ways, we'd say, well, wouldn't it have been easier for God just to send Jesus and him to be 30 years of age? Well, it's more complex than that. There are lots of details, lots of ins and outs, lots of back and forths. You, you could think of it this way. Perhaps you've attended a funeral of late. And, uh, I, I, you know, I get to attend funerals with some regularity, mostly as an officiant, if you will. And um, I'd like you to imagine with me the results of a funeral like a day or two after I've conducted a funeral. So I've, I've put together, if you will, an imaginary funeral. I'm gonna say that the lady who has died is older. She's a fine Christian woman, and I'm gonna call her Beryl. I've kind of looked through my records. I don't think I've ever buried anybody in a Beryl. So we're, we're kind of, that's where we're staying there, all right? So Beryl dies, and we have this lovely event. And could you imagine me saying a few days after the event, you know, Beryl's service went really well. The church was packed. And, and the fact that so many came, that must, that's a testament to a long life that was well lived. She was clearly loved and admired. 
And several people told stories of how Beryl's life had touched them. Some of the stories, they were just downright funny. Others, man, they were so poignant and so profound. We heard from some close friends. We heard from some coworkers. One person knew, that spoke knew Beryl as a young woman, and others who spoke knew her only as an older woman. And then after the service at the reception, I heard all sorts of stories, and each story helped bring more color to Beryl's life. And the more stories I heard, the better I began to understand her life. And it didn't believe, lead me to believe that there were many Beryls. No, there was only one Beryl. But I began to see the rich overtones of a life well lived over a period of time from young to old. And that's the point of this Emmanuel business. It wasn't just a baby who came in arms. No, this God-man chose to experience life with all of the complexities of being human. And if there were people who were to speak about Jesus, if we, again, we didn't have this, but if there was a funeral and people spoke, and spoke about him, some would remember him as a little boy, some as a teenager, and some as a young man, some as the Messiah. In other words, when God came as Jesus, nothing was skipped over. Why? Because we needed to know, humans, you and I, we needed to know that God fully understands the complexities of our lives. In other words, there's more to the story than just a little baby being born. Here's why. It's why this is so important. Christmas and the gospel, do you know, they are about a person long before they are about theological propositions. Now, the gospel and the story of Christmas is, yeah, it's, it's full of theology, of course. And we could talk about all the different kinds of theological implications of Jesus' arrival, but as, as a follower of Jesus, you know what I'm called to do first before I talk theology, if you will? I'm called to introduce people, not to a truth claim, but to a person named Jesus Christ. And this arrival, this God on mission, this business about God and human flesh is this, that God came as a person to experience all of humanity's joys and all of humanity's worries. And in the process, you know what we know? We now know that God knows us and knows about us. You can put it this way. That Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us, as an interruption, a disruption to humanity's story. You could maybe explain it and uh, demonstrate it yourself this week at the house. If you're like ours, our house, we've got a whole stack of different cards that have begun arriving in recent weeks. And uh, it's probably about that thick, that stack of cards that we've got right now. And we put them in a special place. And every day we kind of go back and look through them. And uh, if you sort through that Christmas stack of cards, you'll, you'll see different things. You'll see uh, some Courier and Ives approaches, right? Uh, landscape scenes of New England towns and churches with tall steeples and it's all covered in snow and there, there might be a horse-drawn sleigh in front of the church with a Christmas tree on, on the back of the sleigh and that sort of stuff. Sometimes they have angels on the cards. So I've got to say, just an observation, the angels look rather demure on the cards, if you ask me. 
And I want to go, the angels that I see in scripture are the ones who go, whoa, I'm scared. And they go say, don't be afraid, fear not. I think the cards have got it wrong, but nonetheless. (laughs) Now that could come wrong because being a Cardinals fan, that could just come out all wrong, couldn't it? All right, but you get what I mean. Then you have some religious cards that usually focus on the Holy Family. And the family seems rather unruffled and serene if I look at those cards. They have these bright gold halos like crowns from another world. And they hover just over their heads and I go, is that really what it was like? I've noticed a trend in the last five to 10 years that in addition to the Courier and Ive cards and the uh, cards showing the Holy Family, Uh, There are also lots of cards that seem, the trend seems to be more of cards of people sending us photos of their children and their families, which is very nice. Walgreens will do it for you very inexpensively. You send them your photo, they have a template you can put in, and then off it goes, and it's like everybody's, and so we have lots of different cards in the house, and inside the cards, regardless whether or not they're courier or knives, regardless of the holy family, or you know, little notes from families and friends of ours from around the country and here in the city. There are always words inside like love and goodwill and cheer and happiness and warmth. And it's a good thing on a sacred holiday to include such homey sentiments. And yet I will tell you this, when I read Joseph's encounter with the angel, I sense a very different tone. You know what I see? I see disruption, lots of disruption. Go back and look at the story again, okay? Just glance through your Bible. There's disruption all through this Christmas scene. Joseph is engaged, and then there's a break in the relationship. Do you see it in verse 18? His fiancee is pregnant. You're pregnant? How can that be? I'm not the father, isn't that what he said? Talk about your world turning upside down and disruption. There's more to the story, obviously. We, we, we kind of gloss over it. Then he says, okay, I'm going to break the engagement. And you know, do you see that in verse 20? But then what happens? An angel shows up. And there's a disruption, then it comes along, God in the flesh. Remember I said we'd examine two things. We'd examine the name and the overall impact of the story. Well, we've got the name, Emmanuel, God is with us. And that the overall story is that God is wrapped in the clothes of real skin and bones. But that God that came wrapped in skin and bones is about to disrupt our world's history and our personal lives. Because God on mission, this Jesus coming, disrupted Joseph's life. And the question I would ask you and me, how will this coming of God on mission this Emmanuel, God with us, how will that disrupt our lives? How will that disrupt your life? How will it disrupt my life? See, when we say that Jesus came as Emmanuel, that means that he knew all about the skinned knees of a young boy because there was a time when he was a young boy. He knew all about the challenges and the questions that young adults face. Why? Because one time he was a young adult. In other words, Jesus knew all about your needs, my needs. Why? Because he was human. And in the midst of that, he disrupts who we are. Because of his humanity, he can speak to who we are. 
For example, did you know that he knew of our need for food and clothes and drinks, our daily needs? He knew about that because he mentioned it in, it's mentioned in Matthew 6, where he says you need those things. He knew of your need for a place to sleep, straight up a home, because he acknowledged, I don't have a home, you need a home. He knew of your need to experience healthy, loving relationships, because in John chapter 11, we're told that he had some strong, loving, healthy relationships, that when one of his friends died, it impacted him so deeply. He knew of the needs of parents concerning how they were gonna deal with their children, because he speaks to the way in which children come to parents and parents have a responsibility to take care of them. He knows of your need for a place of solitude and your, and your need for deep spiritual, a deep spirituality that goes beyond the matters of everyday life. You know why he need, knows you need that? Because he himself experienced it and would go and find places of solitude and places where his spirituality would be expressed. And he also knows, not only from about the past, but he also knows about you moving forward, about your need to dream and to have goals that, if you will, eclipse the experiences of the past and even today. Because he spoke about how his followers would have tasks and responsibilities and great adventures moving forward. In other words, Jesus was God in skin and bones and he knows the dynamics of human life. He knows the dynamics of your human life. And he also knows the places where disruption needs to take place in your life. Most of us, all of us, have places where disruption would be a good idea. That's truth. There are places of ugliness and struggle, heartache, for some here tonight, it's a present setting you're involved in right now. For others, it's something that's in the past. You, or perhaps someone else, they messed with the system of your life. And you're living out the results of bad choices. Their choice, your choice, either way. Perhaps it wasn't just poor judgment either, but actual straight up sin, wrongdoing. Maybe it was or is in a relationship. Perhaps it was a business tra transaction. Maybe it was something you did at school or you didn't do at school and it was wrong. Maybe it's not just a one-time event, but it's a pattern and you'd say, man, I wish this would get disrupted. Regardless, there's, if that's the case, and I believe it is for all of us, Somewhere in our story as individuals, there's a heap of emotional and spiritual garbage that's kind of associated with each of us as individuals. For some of us, it's looking at us right in front of our face. For others, it's a case that we have to look in the rearview mirror and we see it back there. But if that's you, I've got some really good news for you. Hear this story in that regard. It's about Fort Bragg. There are two Fort Braggs in our country. I don't know if you know that. Fort Bragg out in North Carolina is a military um, installation, very large. Lots of folk out there in the military serving our nation. There's another Fort Bragg in Northern California, right up on the Pacific coast. As a matter of fact, that city is right on the edge of a cliff in Northern California. Fort, Fort Bragg in California was a boom town 
In the late 19th century, going into the 20th century, 1800s to the early 1900s, lots and lots of people moved to Fort Bragg. Lots and lots, because there were lots and lots of jobs and there were things to do out there. And as more and more people came to town, you know what? One of the problems they faced in Fort Bragg was this. Lots and lots of people produced lots and lots of garbage. And they didn't know what to do with that garbage in Fort Bragg at the turn of the 20th century. As a matter of fact, for decades, all they did was they went to the edge of the cliff into the Pacific Ocean and dumped it over the edge of the cliff. Now, these days we go, whoa, you don't do that. But back then, that was what you did. They literally dumped it off the cliff. Now, in those days, a lot of the things that were packaged in foodstuffs or um, medicines and everything came in glass bottles. And so as that garbage went over the edge of the cliff, the glass bottles would break. 1967, the town finally said, we can't do that anymore. Do you think? Do you think? And so with that, they set up a dump where the things were to be taken. And they went down on the beach and they tried to remove some of the hazardous stuff. But in terms of all the old food and all the bottles and everything, they just left them there. Saying, well, that's the way it is. But nature came along and dealt with it all. Over the years, nature has cleaned the beach. The food and the papers and the garbage have all been washed by the water and disappeared simply due to rot. The glass remained, though. It doesn't disintegrate, right? And the glass... All that broken glass on the beach was tumbled over and over by the waves. And this is what that place of ugliness looks like right now. Take a look at this photo. That's the beach. It's now a place of beauty that tourists go to see. They go to see the dump. Here's my point. Like you, I want the God-man, Jesus Christ, to disrupt the places in my life that need renewal and cleansing. And I want the washing of God's water all over me, tumbling, making me tumble. Scripture says that we are washed by the Scriptures and that the water of God brings about renewal and cleanliness in our lives. I want God to bring places of ugliness that are in my life to bring them out of rot and struggle and be made places of beauty. And my prayer for you tonight is that God will transform the ugly, sharp edges of brokenness and transform them into rounded objects of beauty, reflecting light and splendor. Perhaps you saw me just as we, as before the light came on me tonight to start preaching, I wrote something on my notes right here. I was watching Jeremy's video again and something struck me. He said, I want to be used by God for the people around me who are broken. <laughs> How ironic is that I end my message with the same idea. These bottles being tossed over the cliff, broken, messed up, neglected and saying, that's all ugly down there, we're not going to touch it. And yet, with the washing of the water, what happens? Those jagged pieces of brokenness become rounded pebbles of great beauty, reflecting light and splendor. I don't know about you, but I'd like to say, oh God, be Emmanuel in my life through Jesus Christ. Forgive me. Take my sin, take my ugliness, take the garbage that's been poured and dumped into my life. 
the places that are broken. Tumble them over through the work of you, of your water, God, to the work of your Holy Spirit. Soften the edges, bevel them out, and may my life be a place that as the light of Jesus Christ hits me like we read tonight, the light of the world, we are the light of the world, as that light hits me, may it reflect a, a, a person of beauty that God has worked out through the coming of Jesus Christ, God with us. Let's pray together. God, I'm aware there are lots of us in the room here tonight who would um, we'd echo that sort of prayer, that sort of statement that says there's lots of ugliness, there's lots of, <laughs> there's been a lot that's been tossed into my life, God, and people would say, would you take that and make that right and true and honest? In the places that are sharp, God, that are jagged and broken, Lord, I pray that you would cause some beveled edges to appear. For the light of Christ to be reflected within me for my sake, for the sake of those around me. God, for the person here tonight who would say, there's just a lot of stuff. And right now it looks like there's a lot of stuff that's rotting and broken. God, for that person, I pray that this understanding that Jesus walked as a human, fully human, yet fully God, and there were moments, God, when he skinned his knees. There were moments when he developed calluses. There were moments when he had questions. There were moments when he declared what needs we have. And he, it is so good to know that you know us. You're not a God who is far off, but you're a God who is not only near, but you're a God who came onto this planet called Earth. The wonders of the Christmas story. Impact us all, God. We lean into you. We pray for your work in our lives tonight. In Christ's name.